So, going back a little bit to the very beginning, when we described the different or the anatomical position of the human body and uh, the different regions, um, if you remember, there's a big diagram that we show in the lab uh, showing all the major regions and the minor regions like the palmar region, plantar, um, uh, forearm, antecubital, and so on. But the major regions are these, and they are going to be useful to describe different parts of the appendicular skeleton. Like, for instance, we have this big regions like head, the face that we used in the axial skeleton, the neck, the shoulder, the trunk. But then we have the appendicular skeleton is mainly composed by the upper limb and lower limb. And for the upper limb, we have the arm, the forearm, the wrist, the hand, and for the lower limb, the thigh, the leg, the ankle, and the foot. This is just one of the, it's not complete, it's just the major description, of, I mean, the, the major regions, and how they are useful to describe different parts of the appendicular skeleton. Starting with the upper limb, the upper limb it's connected to the trunk, to the axial skeleton, by means of the clavicle. But here we can describe these regions, the shoulder, the arm, the forearm, and hand. And this is going to be useful to identify different bones that are in every part of these. The shoulder is the point of attachment. That's where the upper limb attaches to the trunk or axial uh, skeleton. The arm is a connection to the shoulder and ends in the elbow, the elbow joint. The forearm between the elbow and the wrist and the hand distal to the wrist. Now, the wrist is another area that is described as a band because it contains some specific bones here and a major joint on the, on the wrist. We can see that in the picture, all these regions, the shoulder, all that part is called the shoulder, and then the arm, the elbow, that mainly pertains to the elbow joint, the forearm, the wrist, and distal, all what we know as the hand. Again, this is going to be useful to describe different bones that are located in every of these regions. Let's start with the shoulder, and this part that is called the shoulder girdle. The shoulder or pectoral girdle because it's attached or close to the chest, and that's what the pectoral, pectoris mean, chest. The shoulder girdle includes two bones, the scapula and the clavicle. And the shoulder joint involves these bones, the scapula, the clavicle, and the humerus. As we see here, we have the three bones the clavicle, the scapula, and the humerus, part of the humerus, which is called the head of the humerus. 
So this is a region of the shoulder containing the shoulder joint where three bones actually interact. The clavicle, the scapula, and the head of the humerus. Now the usefulness of studying the bones is that we will be able to identify these bones in x-rays. We are going to see the bones with the skeleton, but then whenever you see an x-ray, you'll be able to identify all these bones because you know what bone connects to what bone and in what region they are. This is an x-ray of the shoulder region and we can easily identify the bones. Let me trace some of these bones here, see the clavicle here, the head of the humerus, and this belongs to the scapula. All that is the scapula. And following the borders of these bones, sometimes we can, we are, we are able to identify some fractures, some ruptures of these bones, or changes in the, in the alignment or disalignments that we call dislocation. For instance, here, between the acromion of the scapula and the clavicle, this is a joint. This is a connection between the scapula and the clavicle. And that has a name. That's called acromioclavicular joint or AC joint. And this is something that we can easily palpate or touch here. Your clavicle, follow your clavicle and very lateral, you will feel like a bump of this bone. And then, right away, there's a flat surface of bone that's called the acromion that belongs to the scapula. So that is the AC joint, and they're supposed to be aligned like we see in the X-ray. That's an example of dislocation of that joint called AC joint. And that's actually how it looks. See the clavicle here, and the acromion is down here. So this is dislocated, and we see an extra bump here because it's too uh, elevated. And in an X-ray, we can clearly see here the clavicle and the acromion that is all separated and dislocated. So. As I said, knowing the bones, knowing the bones and how they interact with each other, we can see and identify some of these things. Just um, taking a look on the, in the x-rays, compare that one to this one. See the clavicle and the chromium, they are very well aligned. And here, completely disaligned, like in that case of the dislocation of the shoulder joint. This is common in uh, people that fall lateral part of the body or in sports, when they go and push against this, this can be dislocated. Um, and here we see the figures of these bones, and here specifically the shoulder, the scapula, I mean the clavicle, connects into the scapula here. That's where the AC joint is, between the clavicle and the scapula. And the head of the humerus, and the head of the humerus, which also is a component of the shoulder joint. I have a question. Yep. So what's, what's the, I guess it's almost like a 
large protuberance under the clavicle. What is that? Which one? Right underneath. And what picture? This one? The, no, <coughs> this one? There, right underneath the clavicle. Um, what part? This part? I mean, this part? Yes. Yeah, that belongs to the scapula. That is a bone marking of the scapula. Um, and that is a point of attachment for muscles like the biceps. It can also be felt here if you touch your clavicle and you just go below. If you touch deep, 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 you will find that bony like hook coming out. It's kind of uncomfortable to apply pressure there because that's the attachment of tendons of the biceps to that specific part of the scapula. That is part of the scapula. Um, we'll see that here in the study of this scapula. I'm going to mention, I'm going to highlight in, in, uh, some of the bone markings that we'll see in the lab. So to study the bones, you have to have the bones in your hands and put them in different positions and orientate yourself with the skeleton there. Um, and what is the position? Here we see the posterior view and the lateral view. This is a right scapula. Now you are able to tell if you get one bone, single bone in your hand, by knowing the bone markings and by knowing the orientation of some bone markings, you are able to tell if that belongs to the left or right side. How? For instance, there are some markings that are a clue. This marking called spine, the spine of the scapula, which is a process that is posterior, that can be easily touched in your back, and that is a posterior bone marking. Then the bone as a scapula is like a triangle, and we can describe a medial border that goes to the midline of the body. We start using all those terms that we study medial, lateral, superior, etc. There is a superior border, which is here, medial border, superior border, and lateral border, which goes to the axilla or to the side of the body. So it's like a triangle. It's like a triangle and the spine is a projection which goes posterior. If we follow the spine, we will see this marking here that is called the acromion. And now to get better oriented, now we'll see the lateral view and we'll see the acromion and now we see this coracoid process. That's how we call this kind of hook bone marking, coracoid process, which is anterior. So if you grab a bone and you find the spine, you know that that part goes to the, uh, to the back. Then the glenoid cavity. Glenoid cavity is a articular surface for the head of the humerus, which is the bone of the arm. So if you see the glenoid cavity, and you know that it's lateral, always, for the humerus, and you see the spine, which is posterior, then would you see where, where, it, it, where the glenoid cavity is, to the left or to the right, and that way you know if that bone belongs to the left or to the right. We'll see this in, in, the, in the lab with more detail and grabbing the bones and seeing and trying to uh, find yourself uh, in the location of, this, uh, of these bones. This is scapula. These are the markings that are was highlighted in the spine. 
which is posterior. The acromion is a flattened lateral portion. This is the flat surface that we find here in the shoulder. If you grab your, the lateral aspect of your arm and go up, and then it turns, and you will find a flat surface, a bony prominence. That is the acromion. And that's important, I think I mentioned this. This is important for a bone marking for giving injections here. We touch the acromion, two or three fingers below the acromion, that's where we should give the injection, like deltoid technique, for, uh, especially for immunizations. Coracoid process, that projection is anterior. It's anterior, inferior, and lateral to the clavicle. Is inferior below the clavicle, and you can touch that in yourself. Glenoid cavity, that is the surface for the head of the humerus. It's a concave surface, and it's lateral. It's in the lateral border of the scapula that we see here. Now the clavicle. The clavicle is very simple. It's like a S-shaped. What we have to know um, is to identify the ends because there are two ends. One end is called acromial end and the other one is sternal end. And the names say to which bone they connect. Acromial end will connect to the acromion of the scapula and external end to the sternum. You can also follow your clavicle to your sternum and you see how this joins to the manubrium of the sternum and here you have like a little uh, notch on the midline to the side you find the clavicle if you move your upper limb like this you can feel the movement of that joint of the clavicle on and the sternum so these are two joints the sternal the medial end or sternal end is part of the sternoclavicular joint and the lateral end or acromial end is part of the acromioclavicular joint or AC joint. We commonly call this AC joint. Now this clavicle has two surfaces, the superior and inferior. So from this inferior and superior view in this picture, this is a superior view. The surface of this clavicle is very smooth, the superior surface. And the inferior, like from we see from the inferior view, is not smooth, it's kind of rough because there are a couple of tubercles which are bone markings there. Tubercles are like processes, projections, which are mainly for insertion of, or attachment of tendons and ligaments. This conoid tubercle, for instance, is for a ligament. And there is a groove here in the inferior view. And whenever there's a groove, the canal is usually for a blood vessel or a nerve. What runs here is the subclavian artery and vein, both are running below, which are major blood vessels, which are very huge blood vessels. So if someone has a fracture of the clavicle, a piece of the clavicle may injure those blood vessels, and that may be 
important hemorrhage. The arm. The bone of the arm is a humerus and the head of the humerus is proximal, is the one that connects to the scapula, to the glenoid cavity of the scapula. And we find two projections in the head of the humerus, the greater tubercle and the lesser tubercle. The greater tubercle is more lateral, the lesser tubercle is more anterior. Here in this picture we can see the greater tubercle and lesser tubercle. And in between the tubercles, we have a groove called bicipital groove, which is a place where we will find, in this case, not a blood vessel, not a nerve, but a tendon. A tendon that belongs to this muscle, the biceps brachii. The biceps brachii, we'll see that in the muscles, it has two heads or two components. They are called the long head and the short head. This bicipital groove is where the long head of the biceps tendon runs. The individual bones are seen here. And always, when we study the bones, when you study the bones in the lab, you should use all these terms on orientations. You find, you identify the bone, and then which is anterior aspect, which is posterior aspect. And then compare with all the pictures that you have to find all the bone markings like we see here. If we see this bone from an anterior view, then we'll see the greater tubercle, lesser tubercle, and the intertubercular sulcus or groove, the head of the humerus, which is the part that connects to the glenoid cavity. And this is called anatomical neck, the limit between the head and the rest of the bone. The anatomical neck, because there is a surgical neck surgical neck is a little lower almost when the epiphysis connect to the diaphysis of this bone and that's called surgical neck why is called surgical neck because this is the place where it usually breaks when there's a fracture of the humerus it usually breaks at that point of the surgical neck and sometimes requires surgery that's why they call the surgical neck and that's regarding the proximal epiphysis all these markings in the proximal epiphysis. Then going to the diaphysis of the humerus, we'll find a marking called the deltoid tuberosity. Deltoid tuberosity. Which connects to a groove called the radial groove. Right below the tuberosity, which is a small projection, we find the groove called radial groove. Delta tuberosity can be felt if you pass your finger, start here in lateral aspect and touch your side and at, almost at the midline, I mean at the, the, the half point, mid, midway, uh, midpoint of the humerus, you will find like a bump. 
the bump because that is the insertion of the deltoid muscle, this muscle here. That's called the deltoid tuberosity. And these grooves, a groove is always for a blood vessel or a nerve. In that groove we find the radial artery and the radial vein, the radial nerve also running there, blood vessels and nerves. So from giving when we give injections here in the deltoid, there's another thing. We say never go below the deltoid tuberosity. Why? Because if you go lower than that, you may hit the nerve or the blood vessels with your needle. So this area is a very safe space between the chromium, two, three fingers below, but above the deltoid tuberosity. You will see all just muscle there, the deltoid muscle, no important blood vessels. And that is in the diaphysis. Now in the distal epiphysis of the humerus, yes. It is right below, and it goes around. It goes around, yeah, from posterior to uh, lateral. You can see it better from a posterior view, as we see here in this posterior aspect. You see it coming like a diagonal line, and it's actually going around the bone. The distal epiphysis, from an anterior view, there are many markings here. There are two condyles, two condyles. One condyle has a name and it's called the capitulum. Let me make this bigger. The capitulum and the other condyle. Oops. Where is the condyle? There you go. The other condyle is called the trochlea. The capitulum is lateral. The trochlea is um, medial. And on top of the condyles, above the condyles, we have two prominences that are called epicondyles. We have a medial epicondyle and a lateral epicondyle that it is seen, there's not labeled, but it's this bony prominence right here, lateral epicondyle. On top of the condyles, which have names, capitulum and trochlea, we have two small fossa, radial fossa and coronoid fossa. Those are the markings on the distal epiphysis of the humerus. And from a posterior view, from a positive view, we can see the lateral epicondyle much better now, and the medial epicondyle here. And medially, there is a major, a bigger fossa called the olecranon fossa. That's in the posterior view of the distal epiphysis of the humerus. Lateral epicondyle and medial epicondyle are important for attachment of muscles. What muscles? In anatomical position, we are like this. There's a group of muscles in the forearm called the flexors, which work in flexion of the hand like this. 
Well, those muscles, they attach to the medial epicondyle, which also can be touched. If you pass your finger here and next to the elbow, you find a bony prominence, that is a medial epicondyle. And the lateral epicondyle right here is an attachment for another group of muscles located here, which are the extensors of the hand that make this movement right here. So that's why we highlight these two, medial epicondyle and lateral epicondyle, important markings for attachment of muscles. Now, going back a little bit to um, the proximal epiphysis, because there are three facets, articular facets, articular surfaces, that belong to the greater tubercle. And there are three, superior facet, middle facet, and inferior facets, which are points of attachment for muscles. Muscles that are known as rotator cuff muscles. Rotator cuff muscles, which are four. Three of them are here because there are three muscles of these rotator cuff which are posterior. Three of these are posterior, the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. Well, these muscles attach to, the tendons of these muscles attach to these facets that are in the greater tubercle. And these muscles, what they do is rotation. That's what they call rotator cuff muscles, like when you are pouring a drink from the can to a so glass like this, you are rotating your humerus here. And those muscles are working, or when you make this movement right here, your humerus is rotating, and these muscles are attached to the humerus for that purpose. This is anterior, anterior view to see the fourth muscle that belongs to the rotator cuff. There are four muscles, three posterior, one anterior. And the one that is anterior is called subscapularis. And that one attaches to the lesser tuberosity or the lesser tubercle. So that's why the greater tubercle and lesser tubercle four for attachment of these four muscles called rotator cuff muscles. We will study these bones, we'll mention them again when we get to the muscles. And that's a deltoid. The deltoid muscle attaching to, or coming from the clavicle, it attaches to the clavicle, to the acromion of the scapula, and to the deltoid tuberosity of the humerus. Those are attachments for the deltoid muscle. This is defective. It's blank. Let me check the file very quick. Let's have a break. In the meantime, I will check this file. It seems like corrupted. Ten minutes.
So the next, next slide is showing the insertion of these muscles, flexors and extensors that I said they attach to the medial epicondyle. And these are muscles called flexors of the hand. And the lateral epicondyle are for insertion of muscles posterior forearm, which are called the extensors of the hand or extensors of the wrist and the lateral epicondyle. Moving to the forearm, in the forearm we have two bones, the radius and the ulna. These two bones, they have to be described always in anatomical position like this. The radius is lateral. So the lateral aspect, thumb side, always remember that thumb side is where the radius is. And the ulna is medial. Inside anatomical position, you feel the border of this bone right here, that's the ulna. That's the ulna. Radius is in the thumb side. And when the two, two of these bones, they are connected in two parts, distal and proximal. You see here the proximal radio-ulnar joint, and that's where the radius and ulna get in contact, and the distal radio-ulnar joint. So they connect in two parts radial ulnar joint proximal and distal radial ulnar joint. And what is the importance of this connection is that is this movement that we have with the hand, we are able to make this movement, palms down. And for this movement, your elbow is not moving, you can grab your elbow and it will not move, it's just your hand making this. So what happens in this movement is that the radius rotates over the ulna. Anatomical position is like this, and you rotate palms down, and now your thumb is crossing. It's like this with the ulna, making like kind of an X. That movement is called pronation and supination. Pronation, palms down, supination, palms up. And that's why this two, especially the proximal radial ulnar joint, is the one that is involved in this movement. So here we have both of these bones together. And let's see some of these markings. Anterior view first. From an anterior view, what we see is the diaphysis of these bones are connected by a membrane called interosseous membrane. It's a very fibrous membrane that helps to connect this bone at the diaphysis level. And the markings are mostly in both epiphyses, proximal and distal. In the proximal epiphysis, the radius has a head, which is round, a neck, and a radial tuberosity. The radial tuberosity is for attachment of this muscle called biceps. And the ulna, the proximal epiphysis, 
there is this prominence called olecranon process, which can be seen from anterior and posterior view. Trochlear notch, which are like articular surfaces. This olecranon process has like a letter, like the shape of a letter C that engages in the humerus, like a hinge joint. Coronoid process and the joint that we described before, the proximal, radio ulnar joint. And from a posterior view in the proximal epiphysis, we see the olecranon process, like the bony prominence of the elbow. This belongs to the ulna. The elbow prominence here belongs to the ulna. Moving to the distal epiphysis, from an anterior view, there's a pointy end of the radius called the styloid process of the radius. The styloid process of the radius is this prominence that we feel in the thumb side always. If you pass your finger down your thumb, when you get to the wrist, you will find a bony prominence like a pointy thing here. That's the distal uh, or the styloid process of the radius. And the ulna has also a styloid process which is this bony prominence that we see here. Posterior forearm, here, ulnar side, this is the styloid process of the ulna. And those are the markings of the radius and ulna. And as, I, as we were saying, the diaphysis of these bones are connected by the interosseous membrane. There are two joints, radial ulnar, proximal and distal. And the uh, head of the radius articulates to the radial notch of the ulna. That's the proximal radial ulnar joint. The head with the radial notch of the ulna. And distally, the head of the ulna articulates with the ulnar notch of the radius. That's the distal radial ulnar joint. closer look of these um, joints, you can see them here in the forearm, the elbow joint, where we see the radius, the head of the radius, articulates with the humerus at the level of the capitulum, that condyle that we call the capitulum, and the ulna, will articulate with the trochlea, the other condyle of the humerus. That's how they interact. This is a amplified view of the proximal epiphysis of the ulna, where we see the olecranon process here below, the elbow prominence in the posterior uh, elbow. And all in blue are articular surfaces. This is called radial notch because that will be for the head of the radius. The trochlear notch because this will articulate with the trochlea of the humerus. And the coronoid process is a tip of this bone that will fit into the coronoid fossa of the humerus. In the anterior aspect of the humerus, there is a fossa called the coronoid fossa and that's for the coronoid process. Here we see those 
bones, the picture is not so, so good definition, you cannot see it very well in here. But from an anterior view, we can see head of the radius with the capitulum and the ulna with the trochlea. And posteriorly, the olecranon process and the head of the radius. Thus, regarding the forearm. Going lower, we get to the wrist and palm. Both are parts of the hand. And uh, the wrist contains eight, eight short bones called carpal bones, arranged in two rows. The palm contains metacarpal bones, five of them, five metacarpal bones. And the fingers will have phalanges. The bones of the fingers are called the phalanges. And here we can see all these eight bones of the wrist. Each of them have a name. Trapezoid, trapezium, scaphoid, capitate, hamate, pisiform, triquetral, and lunate. In the lab, next week, we're going to see all these bones always articulated to the hand, not disarticulated. It's a mission impossible to identify these bones separately. And that's, I mean, that's not uh, practical at all. What is good to see is these short bones, all of them articulated in the wrist. Well, besides the carpal bones, which are these eight, we have metacarpals which are the bones of the palm of the hand. And there are five, from one to five. They don't have specific names, we just name them with numbers. First metacarpal, second metacarpal, third metacarpal, and so. These bones are in the palm of the hand, or you can see it from the dorsum of the hand, right here, all these are the metacarpals. And distally, the phalanges, which are three. Proximal, middle, and distal, except, except the thumb, which only has two, distal and proximal. There's no middle phalanx in the thumb. Again, we can see all these bones in an x-ray. Um, can you tell the age of this person? Hmm? It's not a young person. It's an adult. No more growth. There's no epiphyseal <coughs> line or epiphyseal plate. And we can easily identify all these bones here. All these are the carpal bones. All these are the metacarpals. And the phalanges. Distal, middle, and proximal. The thumb. Distal and proximal and both bones of the forearm, the radius and the ulna. Radius, thumb side. That's a different view of this. 
Do you see something abnormal here? There's a fracture, I tell you. Where's the fracture? Which bone? Do you see it? Not better. Which metacarpal? Huh? The fifth. You don't say pinky, you say fifth metacarpal. You don't write that in the report. Yeah. What's that? Which one? This one? Yeah. That is a sesamoid bone. Remember, in the classification of bones, we say there are sesamoid bones, which the patella is one of them, a kneecap in the middle of a tendon. But there are smaller sesamoid bones in the fingers and the thumb. Those are very small bones in the middle of a tendon. Yeah, and you see them like that. Yeah, there's a fracture in the first, I mean, the uh, fifth metacarp. In the fifth metacarpal. That's called a boxer's fracture. And you can tell why. It's usually fourth and fifth metacarpals, depending on how strong you punch, um, may be broken. Uh, here you see the fifth metacarpal fracture. Yeah, we named them from one to five. One to five, first metacarpal, second metacarpal, and so, yeah. So are the, the bones of the hands, are they short bones? Yeah. 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 Which ones? Are, are they on the metacarpals, are they the same type of bones as the carpals? The carpals are short bones. The metacarpals are long bones. They are long bones. Yeah. Because you can easily identify diaphysis and epiphysis. And by development, they develop by endochondral ossification. And that's why. Even though they are, I mean, they are not too long, they are small, but they are longer than wide. The phalanges are bones of the fingers, and they are also long bones, the phalanges. Even though they are small, but they are considered long bones. The thumb, as we said, has no middle middle phalanx. There's uh, three phalanges for all of them, distal, middle, proximal, except the thumb, which has no middle phalanx. And here we have the hand from both views, anterior and posterior view. To learn these bones of the carpal uh, region or um, the wrist, there is a specific sequence that you can follow and you do that, this in the lab next week and uh, follow a specific sequence in the names so you can remember them better from an anterior and from a posterior view. And you can study that well in the skeletons, articulated skeletons that we have in the lab. And we get to the lower limb. Lower limb is another um, part 
that belongs to the appendicular skeleton. And in this case, the bones that attach the lower limb to the axial skeleton is or are the pelvic bones. Pelvic bones and the sacrum. The lower limb is also divided in regions like the upper limb. In this case, we talk about the gluteal region. And the girdle here is called the hip girdle. The thigh, the leg, and the foot. Gluteal region between the iliac crest and hip joint. We'll see a picture of that. Thigh, leg, and foot, and also joints, the knee joint, the ankle joint. Very similar to the upper limb in uh, the structure, as we see here, the thigh, the leg, and the foot. Now, this is the structure of the pelvis, and this is how the pelvic bone, the pelvic bone attaches to the sacrum. All this is the sacrum, and you see the attachment here in both sides. Pelvic bone with the sacrum, and that's the way that the lower limb connects to the axial skeleton. And there are actually two pelvic bones, one left and one right. And they get together, they connect to the sacrum, and anteriorly, and anteriorly they connect to each other by the symphysis pubis, which is a joint fibro cartilage, um, and making the whole pelvic girdle, as well as the femur. The femurs contribute with the head of the femur that articulates to the pelvic bone. So the pelvic girdle is composed by the pelvic bones. And the pelvic bones are called hip bones. And if you want to use this name, they are called os coxae. Ox coxae, or hip bones, whichever. Hip bones is easier, it's the same. Or coxal bone, you can also call it that. This is a picture of the coxal or hip bone. We say there's a left and right. But each of the hip bones is composed by three other bones that are actually fused to each other. And you can see the different colors in the picture showing the three different bones. Ilium, ischium, and pubis. Ilium, ischium, and pubis. And we have to use the colors here because actually you cannot tell when you see these bones in the lab you cannot tell which is the limit between the ilium and the ischium, the ischium and the pubis. There may be some lines sometimes, but not always. And you see it, you see the whole hip bone as only one, but it's actually the fusion of three bones. What we do is to identify some parts of this pelvic bone and we tell, well, this part is the ischium, this belongs to the ilium, and this other is the pubis. But there is not exact limits uh, to tell exactly where they connect to each other. And these bones, we, we see them here again, they are connected to the sacrum posteriorly and to one another by the pubic symphysis anteriorly.
The ilium is the largest of all, although three bones. And one of the main markings here is the iliac crest. The iliac crest, which is the bone of the hip. We can, we can touch easily here, down the waist, and all around, anterior to posterior. That border is called the iliac crest and belongs to the ilium. The ilium contains this kind of wing or ala. The border is the iliac crest, and they determine a space here on both sides. And if we see this from inside, that's where the pelvic cavity is. It provides the spaces and borders, lateral borders for the pelvic cavity. The ilium determines a couple of narrow passages called notch, sciatic notch. And we see it here, greater sciatic notch, this narrowing here and here, that allows the passage of a big nerve called the sciatic nerve that goes from the sacrum to the gluteal region, and that big nerve runs in the posterior aspect of the lower limb. It also, the ilium also has this socket for the head of the femur called acetabulum. And that's where the head of the femur articulate. The ischium or ischium, it is located inferiorly and posterior. The most prominent feature of this bone is the ischial tuberosity. And the ischial tuberosity is that bony prominence that gets in contact with the chair when we are sitting. That bony prominence belongs to the ischium called ischial tuberosity. And finally, the pubis, which is anterior and inferior. They are connected to each other by the symphysis pubis. And it has a couple of projections called arms or ramus. A superior ramus and inferior ramus. Because the limit of the pubis is right here and right here. So it's like a letter C in both sides. That's a superior ramus and inferior ramus. And the most important thing is that they connect to each other medially by the symphysis pubis. Now the pelvis is, um, as I said, the lateral borders, it contains the pelvic cavity, all the organs of the pelvic cavity. And there is a line called the pelvic brim, which is highlighted here, pelvic brim. There's a marking called the arcuate line. It's a very clear border. It's like a ring. And that line determines the spaces, the cavity, the pelvic cavity. Above this line is called false pelvis. And below this line is called true pelvis. Why the difference? Well, they call it true pelvis because below this line is also surrounded by bone. And that's a pelvic canal that in female have to be or provide a space for the passage of the fetus 
or baby when at the moment of birth. And false pelvis, because about this line, this is just the iliac crest, the spaces, and anterior, we have the abdominal wall. There's not bone all over, all around. That's why it's called false and true pelvis. Questions, comments?